verse again. Oh, there's so much in that single verse. And we will talk about the term Elohim. And then by extension to the whole concept of the names of God. Now, with that, <coughs> we remain with, the, uh, with our underlying premise that we aim to understand what the Bible tells us, not merely what it says. With this topic, however, it is impossible to get to what it means without knowing what it says. Not that it's possible in other instances, but one can sometimes, at great risk and danger of misinterpretation, skip over the meaning to get to the what it means to say. Uh, what I mean is skip over the meaning of words and get to the intent of the words, but it's impossible with a topic as profound and as precise as the names of God. <coughs> Most listeners know that there are many names for God in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Jewish tradition divides them into the names that can be erased and names that are called kinuim or appellations rather than actual names, descriptive uh, names rather than essential names. Uh, this is based on Talmud in Shavuos 35b and ultimately on the verse in Deuteronomy 12.3 where it says that thou shalt not do so to God your Lord. That is interpreted to mean that you cannot destroy the altars of your God as you are enjoined to destroy the altars of the idolaters. So there are names that are considered descriptive of some kind of an essence, and there are names that are descriptive of actions, such as the merciful, the long-suffering, the just. This would be appellations and not names. Unfortunately, with translation, the richness of the variety of the names has been lost. The precedent was set by Septuagint, where faced with the bewildering varieties of names that had no easy parallel in Greek, the translators decided to use the word theos primarily, and then going to Latin it became deus, D-E-U-S. So you only find deus and dominus. Uh, God and Lord. It's interesting, uh, as an aside, how that work played out in subsequent uh, developments of the Latin language. In Spanish, for example, God became Dios, D-I-O-S, which is an accusative of God in uh, Latin, but in Spanish, where the plural ending is S, it connotes gods, sort of like the word Elohim connotes plurality. What this led to is that the Maranas, the hidden Jews at the time of Inquisition, would not use the word Dios for God, they would say Dio. Just an interesting little aside. Now, 
you may ask, what would be the purpose of all these names of God? Isn't one enough? So here I will quote from Spurgeon that explains it. All through scripture we ought to notice the titles by which God is called in each distinct place. We are so poverty-stricken in thought that we generally use but one name for God, not so in the rich soul of David. Throughout the Psalms you will find them appropriately ringing the changes upon this name, that name and other names and all the varied combinations of names which loving hearts we want to give to the glorious Lord of hosts. The names of God employed in prayer and Holy Scripture are always significant. Holy men of old were not so poverty-stricken in language as always to address God under one name, nor were they so careless as to speak with him under such a title as might first come to hand. But in their approaches to the Most High, they carefully regarded that attribute of the divine nature from which they expected the blessing which they desired. If they needed that their enemies should be overthrown, they pleaded with the arm of his strength. If they were wrongfully entreated, they, pre they pre prayed to the God of righteousness. If they needed pardon for their sins, they pleaded with the God of mercy. And therefore various names are not used indiscriminately, but always with selection and judgment. <clears throat> Methodologically, I'm going to occasionally pronounce the names. Uh, as they are written, where it's crucial for understanding the meaning or the intent of what I mean to say. Other times we will use the traditional substitutive pronunciation, which you will see. It's still sufficient to understand what the name is once you've been exposed to it, but it also gives the holy and glorious name its due respect and honor. There is an interesting story of, about Frederick the Great, who was a genius in so many ways, including in languages. He said that I use different languages for different means. When I'm involved in romance, I speak French. When I wage war, I speak German. When I discuss theology, it's Latin, but when I want to pray, I always use Hebrew. Every language has its genius. The Hebrew language is the language of God, and its genius is many names for God. Now, why would that be so? Uh, I was recently discussing this with one of my sons, and he brought to mind the famous story of Eskimos and snow. This story keeps on going back and forth, uh, whether it's a wife's or old tales or whether it's really true. It seems that more recently it's beginning to be considered true again. But the concept is that the Eskimos have 10 different words for snow. There is a word for wet snow, dry snow, compact snow, clean snow, dirty snow, etc. Each one of those <coughs> deserves its, its own name. This was usually quoted to show that language is designed for the circumstances of its inhabitants. If snow is one of the most important things in your life, you will have many words for it. And if it isn't, you might suffice with just one. 
Therefore, it is part of the genius of the Hebrew language to have many names for God. Now, before we get more into the topic, I want to point out two things. One is, there are two different kind of endings for the names that we'll discuss. One is this Elohim that we're going to speak about now. Now, this is unequivocally plural ending. Like most words in Hebrew that are masculine, the Yud and Mem, the E-M-M, at the end of the word, is unequivocally plural. However, many other names that we'll discuss as well <coughs> are not as unequivocally plural. Uh, names like Adonai, Shadai, end with an I, which means plural mine. In other words, Adonai would mean my masters. So it is plural, but it may not be, as we'll see. So let's go to the first approach to explain this. The first approach to explain this is that the plural names of God are the plural of majesty. We, the crown. We, the king. It is possible for a single individual to use the word we and to use plurals for, uh, for people uh, or beings that are uh, possessive power and authority over others. <clears throat> Very often, the plural of majesty is used with the verb, which is in singular. In English, you can't really see that, but like in this verse, uh, Elohim is clearly plural, but it says, and God created, and the word created, bara, is a third person masculine singular. So it's singular. That fits very well. And it has the advantage of being a general explanation. All the plural sounding names of God can be explained in this way. I'll read to you from Jesenius, from his Hebrew grammar. Jesenius uh, was a uh, non-Jewish scholar that wrote a classic medieval uh, book of grammar, of Hebrew grammar. And he says like this, the Jewish grammarians call such plurals plurvirium or virtutum. Later grammarians called them plura excellentiae magnitudinis or plural majesticus. This last name may have been suggested by the we used by kings when speaking of themselves, such as in 1 Maccabees 10.19 and 11.31. And the plural used by God in Genesis 1.26 and then 11.17. Isaiah 6.8 has been incorrectly explained this way. This is all quoting. I continue. <coughs> it is, however, either communicative, including the attendant angels. So at all events in Isaiah 6.8 and Genesis 3.22. Or according to others, indication of the fullness of power and might implied. What he's talking about that in Isaiah 6, 8, 
God says, Mi Ashalech, who will I send? And here it's singular. Umi Yelechlanu, who will go for us? What he's saying is, because the previous verses describe the attending angels, uh, the the uh, the who will go for us means for me, God, and for the angels around me. Okay. It is best explains the plural as a plural of self deliberation. The use of the plural as a form of respectful address is quite foreign to Hebrew. So he says that it's not uh, a respectful, uh, aggressive form, but it is something one says about himself. When one, that one is in a position of power and authority. Uh, Rashi and Ibn Ezra have similar approaches. I'll read Rashi because of the so many examples that you quote. This would be in Genesis 20:13. It says, "When God's made me wonder," <coughs> it says, it, uh, "Rashi says this is a plural." And don't be surprised, because in many places we see the language of divinity and the language of authority uh, read in plural. Uh, for example, that God's went Samuel 2, 7.23. By the, by, by the way, as an aside, uh, the Christians would usually say to Samuel, uh, but I will use the Jewish uh, convention of saying Samuel 2. The same thing with kings. Uh, Elohim Chaim. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.23. Uh, Holy Elohim. Joshua 24.19. And all language of Elohim is plural. And so also... And the masters of Joseph, Genesis 39:20, and the master of masters, referring to God, Deuteronomy 10:17. That this is a very good example because the master of masters has to be singular and yet uses a plural term. Uh, the master of the earth, Genesis 42:30, and also his owners with him talking about when someone borrows vessels and uh, breaks them. It uses owners in the plural, because that's the, uh, that's the individual in the transaction. It has the upper hand. So owners with him. <coughs> Exodus 22:14, <coughs> Or he shall be a witness to with his masters. Again, in plural. Uh, also in Exodus 21:29. And if you question why in this verse is the verb also used in plural, so that God had made wonder, and the made wonder is in plural. This is one of four examples that we'll surely discuss where the verb is in plural instead of us and the other. All examples when it's in singular with the use of a plural noun. Uh, that's uh, and he goes on to explain that.
Okay. Um, the Ibn Ezra says something very similar. An our verse, first verse in Genesis. And uh, he quotes some of the similar examples. <coughs> the advantage of this approach is that it explains all divine names. It accounts for the use of singular a verb in singular along with the divine name which is in plural. Uh, it does not well account for the four exceptions, one of which we just saw. And there are three others, but will take us too far apart uh, to a uh, four, I should say, to discuss them now. And uh, it will be perceived, I'm afraid, as nitpicking and uh, make us forget the whole purpose of understanding what it tells, not what it says. But I'll list examples. One of them is the one we just discussed, Genesis 20.13. Another one, Genesis 35.7. Because there Elohim appeared unto him. The verb is in plural. Uh, 2 Samuel 7.23. And gods went. Went is in plural. And Psalm 58.12. Surely his God Elohim who judges and the verb being used is again in plural. Uh, all other appearances of the term Elohim in Tanakh have uh, verbs that are in single. Okay. Uh, other explanations. Another good grammatical explanation for the plurality here is provided by the Haskuni, a medieval French-German commentator, who points out exactly the distinction that Elohim is unequivocally plural. But some of the other names maybe not. He says that um, names such as Shadai, Adonai, are a different mishkal. A mishkal means a different grammatical form. And he points a few others that have nothing to do with divinity that are in the same mishkal. For example, the word zakai, righteous. Banai, a builder. Kazdai, a Chaldean. Aramai, Aramean. Davai, my suffering. Ashmai, um, uh, wicked. So, he agrees that the word Elohim is plural, but all other names are not plural. They simply follow a certain grammatical form, which refers to the actions, vocation, or occupation of the individual you refer to. Shmuel David Lutzata, a 19th century commentator, an interesting individual who headed the rabbinic school in Padua, Italy, but whose interests were primarily exegetical and having to do with the Bible. He 
would I would say stood on the boundary of orthodoxy and enlightenment. And this is what he says. He says Elohim, the word El and Ail is the language of power and strength. And Elohim is a plural. And this is uh, customary among the nations of the world, quoting from Kuzari 4.1, that they called all the powers of nature, which are the causes of things that happen on the earth, and they worshipped all of them, and each one was for a specific individual, God. However, the Hebrews, who believed in unity of God, kept this word in its plural form to teach that God, who they serve, is not only one singular power, as the nation would say. The God of mountains is God, and not the God of valleys is God, quoting from Kings 1, 20, 28. But he, in other words, the Hebrew God, is a collection of all the forces and master of all the forces. So, here we're beginning to get a little bit closer to what it tells, not what it says. What the pl plural form of the name Elohim, and possibly other names, is meaning to tell us that we perceive God in this world in multiple forms. However, we should not be led to error of thinking that each force is an independent power. So we should not say there is rain, so there is a god of rain. There is wind, there is a god of wind. The sun is a god and the moon is the god and the clouds are a god because why all of these things appear different and divergent. So the most natural conclusion would be that each one of them is a separate god. And that's the origin of paganism. By precisely using the plurality for God, which in other ways we indicate that he is one, we are saying to the world and to ourselves that all the divergent phenomena which we see on earth are all different manifestations of one single divinity. This is the old problem of unity and multiplicity. How could one God cause so many different manifestations. Restated in different ways, how could one God be able to create so many different things? And now we come to the Sipornos explanation. Uh, as an introduction, uh, I need to say a few words about Neoplatonic Platonic thought. Um, please forgive me if I don't give justice, this is a complicated topic. But uh, Plato himself thought that uh, all knowledge is based on us grasping pre-existent eternal ideas, called ideas with a capital I, so that if we see a table, we immediately know that it's a table, even though it may be looking very different from other tables we know. This one might have three legs, the others might have four. This may be 
brown, the other ones have been black or white. Uh, it's a different size, different height, yet we immediately grasp the idea of a table. That is because our mind unites with the pre-existing idea, which then gives us the knowledge of tableness, and therefore we can recognize this thing as a table. So there are ideas for everything. Every concept we know, a key, key could be large or small. It could even be a verbal key or a key to the structure of the DNA. But we know the concept of a key because it's an idea that is uh, abstract, spiritual, and not connected to any particular key object. Fine. Philosophers who came after him extended this idea, and they said, well, if every idea has its eternal, pre-existent, heavenly counterpart, what is it that all ideas share in common? And they said, well, we'll call that thing the good. And the good as identified with God. I, I don't know if uh, the word God has in some way some etymological connection to this concept, but the good is God, and the Neoplatonic thinkers worshipped this good, not that they believed it has any uh, effect in their lives, that uh, it interferes or knows, but it was an object of veneration nevertheless. They went to the next step and they said, well, the world was also made this way, backwards. From the good emanated various stations, and from various stations emanated various ideas, and ultimately the world. However, they had one problem. And I'm not a scholar of Neoplatonic philosophy, but I understand that the vexing problem that none of them were able to truly solve was the problem of one and many. How could one God, one absolutely, in essence, indivisible, one as no other beings or objects can be, how could he emanate the world which we see as full of multiplicity and difference? So let's look at Siporna. And then we'll attempt to give an answer to this question and uh, perhaps understand the term Lakim even better. So the Siporna says, it says Elohim, multiple uh, language of many, to teach that he is the form of all forms. Let's explain that. Uh, in uh, Platonic philosophy, there were also forms which are identical to these ideas, and there's matter. Matter takes different forms, and that's how the same underlying material substance can be a table, a chair, a human being, a bird, whatever it is. So, the form of all forms, we're talking about this uh, idea of all ideas, what the Neoplatonic philosophers called the good, this is the eternity, and all that's outside of it. And he goes on to say, skipping a bit, this shows that there is no existence outside of his existence, except that which emanates from his existence. 
and no existent being could be found except through his existence. As it says in Nehemiah 9, 6, and you give life to all of them. And by the method of analogy, that which is separate from matter is called Elohim. So, the form, all the forms that are actually spiritual entities are called Elohim. And through analogy, the judges are called Elohim. Actually, they, for them you use the word Elohim, no uh, special honor to judges. When they judge in the image of God, they're called Elohim. To teach on, uh, to, 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 to teach us about His greatness. Uh, that from Him, the eternity of all other separate beings came to be. And uh, in that vein, it says, Elokei Halakim, which, which the foreigner obviously understands as the idea of ideas is God. <clears throat> okay, so now we're getting close. Uh, what, by using the term Elohim, uh, the uh, Torah is telling us that this creative force that shaped and fashioned the world was the imposition of forms uh, of individual shapes and qualities to inanimate, simple, indivisible matter. And that aspect of divinity is called the Lokim. Now, back to the question of how can one emanate many? As we said, a single indivisible divine being should not be able to produce many. The problem was solved by Kabbalah and especially Hasidic teachings. In uh, the work of Rabbi Rashab, Reish Ayn Base. He draws on this literature and he explains that there were roots of future material beings in the one indivisible God. However, they were truly indivisible despite the fact that they could ultimately give rise to a variety of beings. <coughs> uh, I would explain this with the thought experiment of the infinite hotel known in mathematics. So imagine there is a hotel that has an infinite number of rooms. And now 10 more guests arrive. They go to the clerk in the lobby and he says, I'm sorry, but all the rooms are taken. The leader of the group turns to him and says, Mm, can't you just move everybody 15 rooms forward and then there'll be 15 rooms left and then we could lodge there tonight and the clerk says okay yes we can do that we can do that because 
there's no end to infinity. And it is possible to move all the inhabitants of this infinite hotel 15 rooms further. And therefore, there'll be 15 rooms for this very finite and very boundary group, which has 15 members, very far from being one. And it will now become a part of that infinite hotel. So it is possible for the infinite one to incorporate in it various other beings. So to come back uh, to the explanation, at some point of creation slash emanation, there was not yet a concept of a boundary. It was not yet true that two bodies cannot occupy the same space, and it was not yet true that something cannot be one and many at the same time. Prior to that development in the, uh, that stage of emanation, it is still possible to say that one and many are not incompatible. One could be one and one could be many, and yet there would be no contradiction in these terms because the concept of boundary and distinction had not yet been emanated. So, with that, let's come back to our uh, verse. In the beginning, God created what kind of God? A God that was both one and multiple. And how is that possible? Because everything that were to come was contained as its root, imperceptible, and you could never tell that it's separate from the unity. You could only tell that its products were separate. <coughs> and that did not violate its unity because the concept of incompatibility of one and many did not yet exist. So that was the name that was used for creation and that is the name that is being used throughout the first chapter of Genesis. It is only with the completion of creation, with the ossifying of boundaries, with the world as we now perceive it, and more importantly, with the appearance of men for whom all these distinctions were meaningful and real, that another name comes in the fore, and that is Ado, Shem Elohim, the Lord Elohim. And the distinction within the names of God also come to four. We'll discuss that another time. So, again, thank you, friends and colleagues, for listening. And may you know only the blessings. <laughs>